Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey everybody, welcome to this week's podcast. There's no special announcements or anything this week, so let's just jump right into it. The GameCube optical drive emulator, the GC Loader, just got a few firmware updates that helps with compatibility. So a few updates ago, there was a firmware that introduced better audio streaming capabilities, but they found that that caused issues with certain games. Um, so they originally pulled that update and now just released a new one that both reintroduced it and fixed it. So if you're a user of the GC Loader, this seems like a pretty safe update to just jump on and do. Um, you know, I always go back and forth depending on the device. Sometimes I just always get the latest version. Uh, it's especially that way with Swiss, because for me, at least it's easy to swap back to older versions if you want to. And other devices, I always tend to leave well enough alone. That's certainly the case for Adobe Premiere for when I'm editing these. I can't tell you how many times I've gotten an update that broke something that's essential to my workflow. And I guess OBS, anybody that listened to the Q&As last week, uh, it seems like every time I upgrade, it introduces some weird issue that I didn't ever have before. So <laughs> I do understand if you're the type of person that says leave well enough alone or wait until one of the safer updates. Uh, but this seems like one of those updates that um, it's pretty ironed out and any of the bugs have been fixed. So it seems like it's a good one to go ahead and upgrade to. And as always, thanks to the teams of people behind this stuff, always keeping things up to date and taking the time to do these updates. Um, you know, once a product's sold, no one's required to do anything. And it's just really awesome. That's that's almost never the case. Most of the people in the retro gaming scene really stand by their products and continue to update it long after it's been sold. So thanks very much to the team. Uh, and and i got to remember to upgrade mine to try this out now. Sega temporarily released two games last weekend in celebration of their 60th anniversary, and the whole thing was, I guess, a little bit odd. Uh, the first is a canceled prototype of the game Golden Axed, which I guess was a fighting game, uh, and the next was a game called Streets of Kamurosho, uh, which is kind of like a Streets of Rage-style game that was also unreleased. I believe it was out there uh, to play just for two days each, and then they disappeared. Um, I didn't buy them. I didn't. I didn't know um, what the deal was. I don't know if after you bought them they stay on your computer, or if they disappear, or or if they were only on sale for a few days. But I would imagine if this was super temporary, that you know. Uh, creative members of the gaming community would have found a way to back these up. But it was kind of a, a cool and also kind of an odd situation because one of the games, um, the developer kind of spoke out and said, hey, Sega was, uh, you know, I I guess they understood that Sega was was tooting this as an unfinished game. So like, keep your expectations in check. This is just a fun little thing. This isn't a polished game. So, you know, if it breaks while you play it, don't complain about it. It's unfinished. And I get that part of it. But the other thing that was kind of interesting was the developer the developer who originally kind of had crunch time on it and and really scrambled to make it work was deeply offended that they would kind of show this off as like a hey look at this piece of
piece of crap game, play it if you want to laugh at it type of thing. Um, you know, I guess they'd put a lot of work into that and really hoped it would eventually end up being a polished, finished game. And it was kind of interesting to see because it's very easy, especially easy for me as well, to stand here and talk to a camera and write these articles without considering the people behind it. And I always do. I, I try my best to. I'm only human. I screw up all the time. But I always try to put myself in other people's shoes whenever I do anything from talking to a camera to write to even vent with friends, although I'm obviously much more loose when I'm just being silly with friends, but I still always try to think of the other side of that. So the whole situation around these two games was weird. Uh, you know, I, I think it was neat to release them, but if it was an unfinished game that you're saying, hey, experience this part of our legacy and just for what it is, why not just release it then? Or why not open source it or do something really fun and uh, you know, something to build a community around it. I mean, imagine the original developer might have thought the exact opposite. If they said, hey, we're open sourcing this game. This is a cool thing that was never finished. Let's polish this up. Or, you know, obviously there's legal issues. Maybe there's IP that can't be released. Maybe there's other stuff out there. And, you know, I'm just spitballing ideas here. I, this wasn't a well thought out section. I'm just saying it felt like Sega could have done things that celebrated a bit more in a different way rather than just a very weird you can only play this for two days type of thing but I don't know let me know what you thought of the games if you played them let me know if you thought uh it, you know if they're already backed up places and of course as always let me know if I got the situation wrong I'm only basing my information off of the things that I've read about it which is both Dan's article the original posts from the or the posts from the original developer and everything Sega wrote on it but I mean, maybe there's a whole other side of this that I'm missing. So it just seemed like a very weird way to celebrate their legacy. But hey, I'm interested to hear what you have to say. Mike Moffat has just open sourced his Neo VGA project, which is a way to use an FPGA to get the direct digital signal from a Neo Geo and convert that to VGA with, I believe, scanline options as well. Um, I know Mike had sold a few of these, and generally they had gotten very good feedback, and I guess he's just open sourcing the project now for anybody else that wants to work on it, which I think is absolutely awesome, and I really love to see this happen. You know, I... While I'm a fan of open source, I'm not 100% dedicated to it. I really think that if you spend your time designing and then especially manufacturing and supporting something, that, you know, make your money off of it. And eventually when you're done open source, or maybe when it starts to run its course, and especially if things like clones already start to appear, um, and I think that's exactly what Mike did. I think he worked on this project for a while, um, and then he was just done supporting it. Now he just opened it for anybody that wants to use it, which is pretty cool. Um, there's also... Just a reminder that there is an open source Neo Geo HDMI mod as well. Um, that was by Charlie Cole, the same person who did the uh, LCD Zapper. I keep forgetting that the project changed names, so I forgot what the, the original project name was. And I just think it's really awesome that there's a bunch of solutions out there. Uh, I'm aware of a few more open source Neo Geo stuff coming out within, well, it probably should have been out by now, but you know, with the world shutting down for a while, it's probably going to be another six months. But it's just really cool to see the Neo Geo platform embraced like this because for years, I mean, up until just a few years ago, the words Neo Geo always ended in empty your wallet and max out your credit card. <laughs> so just to be able to have projects where people could find original motherboards and be able to get the outputs they want without spending a fortune on them is really awesome. So thanks very much to Mike for doing this. Uh, I did an interview with Mike many years ago, uh, weekly roundup number 12. Wow. So like 200 of these ago, uh, 
and I haven't watched that interview in a while, so I'm kind of embarrassed to see how bad of a job I did. But maybe I'll get Mike back on now that I'm at least a little bit better at interviewing <laughs> and uh, and hear his thoughts about this and all the other cool projects that he's a part of. But anyway, thanks to Mike for open sourcing it. The team behind the RGB Pi line of products has just released a few software updates for their custom software image for the Raspberry Pis. And for anybody unaware, the RGB Pi products are now three different revisions of products that plug directly into or wire to a Raspberry Pi that allow for true RGB output. And the three products that they have are a SCART cable that plugs right into the GPIO port. Um, that's just the simplest way to get RGB SCART out of a Pi. Uh, they also have a JAMA adapter that I've been using that's absolutely awesome. And then they have another adapter that you would manually wire each of the inputs and outputs to uh, for something like a, a fully customized cabinet situation. Um, and it, they're all great products, but I think that the software is actually my favorite of all of the Raspberry Pi retro software out there. I found it really easy to use, um, and I think it's truly designed with controllers and arcade sticks in mind, whereas so many of the other ones, you know, you might have to connect a computer to do anything to it. Um, you know, good luck with some of the customizations that you'd have to do. Whereas this, I, I always felt flowed a little better. Now, it's been about a year since I've done a deep dive into any of these Raspberry Pi software images. So maybe that's changed. Uh, but with the updates that the RGB Pi team has posted and with the line of hardware, I figured it was worth writing a post just to remind everybody, if you own these products, maybe try the new software if you want to see any of the enhancements. Um, and if you're unfamiliar, I just gave a everybody a quick rundown and uh also just a warning that their their sales page is a bit odd i think you have to submit a request for them they don't just sell through paypal or anything but um it's it's something that might seem shady at first but it's not i've bought stuff from them a bunch of other people have uh, i didn't say that to insult them i just said that just to let anybody know if you're going to buy stuff from them um, don't get turned off by the buying process there's nothing shady there at all Analog has just announced the Duo, and it looks awesome. I absolutely have to take a moment to talk about this. So the console is modeled after the PC Engine and Turbo Duo, and it plays original Hue cards and CD-ROMs from all regions. Uh, it accepts original PC Engine controllers and has built in both Bluetooth and 2.4 gig wireless, uh, just RF wireless, for anybody that wants to sync their existing 8-bit Duo controllers. Um, it's $200, and... Also, shipping and import taxes might apply. So, depending where you live, the price will be between two twenty and three hundred, uh, maybe more. I don't think it's ever been too much more than that. And it'll be around sometime next year. I would assume about a year from now. Uh, no, no confirmation on that though. That's just my assumption. And. Overall, as long as it performs as well as the other analog consoles do, because yes, there's still some bugs to be worked out. They're not 100% perfect, but overall, um, any reasonable person would agree that they perform very, very well. You plug your cartridge in and it works great uh, in most cases, I, I think, at least in all of my testing. As long as they perform as well, I think this could be a really cost-effective choice for a lot of people. And I'd like to paint a scenario about that to put that into perspective. Um, let's say you don't own a Duo, but you've always wanted one, uh, an original Duo. Turbo Duos are probably going to be about the same price as this anyway. But then you have to do a capacitor replacement to it. Even if you already own one, the capacitors on all of these are leaking. And eventually the fluid is going to just 
burn through the motherboard and make it completely unfixable. So right off the bat, you have to do at least that. And if this is a console you're going to use, then you're probably going to want to do an RGB mod. If you have a bunch of different hue cards from all regions, you're going to want to have the region mod in there. If you use a lot of discs, you might look into replacing the laser, having the laser assembly tuned up. So overall, you're, you're dumping a lot of money into that already. And even uh, on the non-Duo original consoles and the core graphics and turbo graphics, you know, if you want CDs, you're going to get the Super CD module. If you want arcade card games, you have to buy that. Super graphics requires an entirely different console. And of course, you can get an SSD S3 to play all of those, but that's more expensive than just the Duo. And even on the other side of things, while I'm always the type of person that prefers original hardware, I love it for the hardware preservation point of view, and I just, I like that experience. If I owned a Duo, I would be very, very tempted now to do the cap replacement uh, and then keep that completely stock. So now I have my hardware-preserved, awesome, original thing that I could, at any time I want, plug into a CRT and have an original experience and then instead of spending all of that money on all the upgrades, it might be tempting to buy the analog duo and just be able to get all of the all of the options I need right there while still owning original hardware for when I want that experience. And, you know, all of that too, even if you needed the DAC, even that extra charge, it's still probably going to be more cost effective. So I think the Duo is a console that many people might consider, even if they normally wouldn't lean towards FPGAs, even if normally they would be like me, who prefers original hardware. This is very appealing for all of the reasons I just talked about. Um, also, uh, interestingly enough, uh, I talked to Kevin Horton, Kevtris, the, the lead FPGA engineer, who said that there's now a team of people working under him, and he's still the lead, but he's now teaching his skills, uh, and as well as using the proprietary hardware and software tools to a group of other people who are now working on this core, and hopefully working on going back and ironing out some of those bugs in some of the other cores that were out there, which I think is awesome, you know? Anytime you have one person in the company doing something, they tend to burn out, which sucks. You know, you want to make sure to treat your employees right. And on top of that, you know, have, spreading your information out throughout multiple people is always a good thing for longevity. So I'm really happy for Kevin. I hope that worked out in his favor. And I hope that means that we get more analog products and we get a little more tweaking and availability for uh, bug fixes and other stuff on the rest of them. Overall, it looks awesome. And I'm really looking forward to trying this thing out. You know, unfortunately, though, with analog, there's always some kind of controversy whenever they do any kind of product launch. Uh, this time, it's they just came right out and said in one of their tweets, limited quantities, which so many people found offensive. I found it really offensive and uh, and made and let them know how offended I was about it. Um, and, you know, this kind of does bring up the my only true complaint about analog is that nobody else questions them but me. Every major publication just regurgitates their press releases and has always since analog, since before analog made FPGA stuff, when they were just making glued together Neo Geo boxes, they still get the same treatment in all of these publications and no one ever questioned it ever. So it sucks because I also feel that because no one else is questioning it, I need to double down when I do. And I always think about other people. So what if you're a fan of the uh, the duo, but you're not at all involved in the retro gaming scene, and you just happen to see this pop up in one of the major publications, and you think, oh, that's awesome, I've always wanted one, or had one as a kid, or whatever, so, all right, I'll write this down, all right, they're 
Pre-sales are opening Friday at 10 a.m. Got it. And on your lunch break on Friday, you log in and they're all sold out. And it you all because no one told you that this is what analog does. <laughs> so I just, you know, I feel the need to, to talk honestly about it just because nobody else does. Uh, and it's frustrating. Um, to be honest, if, if other people had spoken about this and other people talked about how their shipping can be insane and, you know, how uh, how they their marketing kind of deliberately riles people up about this, I just would kind of make a, a snooty comment and move on. I certainly wouldn't talk for multiple minutes about it. But once again, I'm the only one talking about it. So whatever. Um, you know, I really do think that Chris Tabor's marketing ability is brilliant. I just really think that um, this one wasn't too well thought out. I think that while I'm by no means a marketing specialist, you could have taken uh, a niche product like the Duo and really spun it in a way that got people excited. Um, and, you know, I do also understand that many people uh, who are journalists might not have any uh, other background to compare stuff with, so they might not feel comfortable talking about manufacturing. And I respect that very much. But I do have a bad background in manufacturing. For six years, I worked for a company where I was part of a design team for medical grade computers. Uh, it used Intel embedded line of products, which is very similar to FPGA line and in, uh, Intel's product roadmap. And I also was a major part of the manufacturing. So I understand all of these things. So when I say something like, when they say limited quantities, it's 100% a marketing choice. Um, you know, there is, of course, there is uh, the choice of, all right, and I'm going to make up numbers here, but let's say I could make a run of 5,000 or 10,000 and I have no other choice. If they choose 5,000 and sell out right away, that's a good thing for everybody except the people that didn't get it. But if they choose 10,000 and they only sell 6,000 and there's 4,000 of these on a shelf somewhere, that could put a small to medium company out of business. So I absolutely understand uh, caution with things like this. However, why couldn't they have said something like, explained what I just explained and say, hey, maybe there's not going to be a second run. There might not be enough demand. This might be the only run of these that we ever make ever, but we're going to open up pre-orders for the entire first week of June. <clears throat> so you have six, seven months to save up your money. Everybody gets a chance. And if you discovered it after the pre-order, sorry, that's just kind of how things go. But anybody that's aware, we're going to give our chance. Wouldn't that actually have done the same, accomplished the same thing, given people that same sense of urgency? Like, all right, I got to have my $300 together by June. You know, I got to make sure that I, you know, that, that I'm, I'm there for this. It's only going to be made once, but without without really sticking your middle finger up at all the people that missed out on the pocket, um, all the people that want your other products, but the only place to get them is scalped on eBay. So I don't know. It's, um, it's very frustrating, uh, especially talking to people in the scene who really wanted one, but didn't get a chance to, I don't know. But uh, the other thing that absolutely fascinates me is marketing like this does something, it triggers something in some people's brains. And it's the exact same thing with limited run games. Another company that I like very much, and I've always supported, and I've just had some criticisms about certain things. And sometimes I was right, sometimes I was wrong, but they evolved into an awesome company. Uh, and I've, you know, I enjoyed interviewing them and I always talk well about them. I always voice my opinions when I don't think they did something right. I mean, whatever, that's fine. But both companies create this weird thing with some people where I'll say something and somebody will take the exact statement that I said and say, how come you went so easy on them? You know, they're just paying you off in free units in order to get you to be nice to them. You're just a shill. And another group of trolls will take the same exact statement and go, you're just jealous because they didn't send you enough demo units or something. And I, it, 
the marketing this style this this limited run this you have to you're part of an exclusive group that gets one of these definitely triggers something in certain people and heck it even triggers things in perfectly normal people i saw a lot of uh much harsher tweets than mine being talked about and being thrown around from people that are normally very calm and reserved uh so hey you know on the one hand what analog is doing is is obviously working for them but on the other hand this whole you know this whole teasing of you're not able to get one limited quantities is making them feel like one trick pony in their marketing abilities, which I'm pretty positive. Chris is better than that. So hopefully they'll, uh, they'll have another press announcement in three months or something that, that says a week long opening. I don't know, but you know, it is up to us to talk about stuff like that. And on a positive note, I think the very best example is, uh, wasn't there just a PS five teardown that Sony themselves posted? That was unheard of just a few years ago, and it's because of us. It's because we all speak out and say, this is what we want. And the first day a product's launched, you know, the specialty channels are going to tear it apart and show you it, and companies are obviously listening. So you know, maybe we'll find a way to get through to analog so that they can make these products available for the people that need them while, they, while not taking risks and having to buy too many and leaving them with a lot on the shelf. Hopefully there's a happy medium, but I do hope they evolve a little bit because that last, you know, it's one tweet out of many. You could always take one tweet out of context. It's happened to me before. Um, but it did just kind of say if they were willing to say limited quantities in such a well thought out marketing campaign, it did kind of feel like a middle finger to everybody. And I really hope they, uh, they reconsider how they release their products um, and, and especially reconsider the availability of them as well. Cause it's just not fair that a bunch of people are, need to spend a grand to buy something that's 200 bucks just because it's not available directly. An MSU MD patch was just released for the Genesis version of Road Rash 2 that replaces the in-game soundtrack with one remade by Dean Harris. And in order to play it, you need to buy the soundtrack from Dean Harris's website, um, download the patch and tools, as well as find yourself an original ROM, uh, and then just run the tools to put all that stuff together. And you have the choice of playing this on original hardware or certain emulators. And for anybody unaware, these MSU MD patches... Uh, are able to be run on original hardware, even without one of the more expensive ROM carts. So of course you could use the Mega EverDrive Pro or Mega SD, and those will work fine. Just uh, treat it as if it were a Sega CD game after you've patched it. However, if you have one of the cheaper ROM carts, or I guess just the ability to flash a ROM onto a cartridge, um, then you could take this patched ROM and then burn a CD to go in the Sega CD. So you could actually use it that way, uh, which I think is pretty incredible. And of course, the Mister supports it because the Mister is just nailing everything these days. Uh, but overall, you know, the, for me personally, these MSU's uh, audio hacks are hit or miss. Um, you know. And I mean that respectfully because this is just preference. There is no right answer. Uh, there are many, many times where I prefer the CD quality audio music that have been integrated. Um, almost every time somebody takes arcade music and and patches one of the original or one of the console ports of the game with arcade music, I almost always prefer those. And sometimes I just prefer the original music that are already built into the games. But the fact that we have choices now are freaking awesome. So if you're a fan of Road Rash 2, definitely try this out. Uh, this is definitely on my list of stuff I want to try. I just haven't had time to yet. So all the instructions are there if you'd like. Two previously unreleased Famicom Disk System games were just dumped. And they're both pretty interesting because it seems like they're both 
uh, early examples of ROM hacking. So nowadays we're all spoiled with the, the tools and abilities out there to hack a lot of these older ROMs, to change a lot of stuff on them, and then to load them into an emulator or onto a ROM cart and be able to play them. Uh, back in the day, it was a lot harder to do so. To f- so to find two different games out there on original Famicom Disk System carts that were hacked is pretty special. Uh, one of them has the Mario hacked so that he's always swimming in every level, among a few other things. Uh, and another one is a hack that allows access to all of the different worlds of a game, including the Minus World, uh, at um, right through the main menu. So just the fact that these are out there and were something that you might have been able to buy somewhere in Japan, you know, using the Famicom disk system was pretty cool. And I'm really happy that people took the time to find these, dump these, and share them with everybody. So, you know, thanks to everybody involved. And of course, thanks to Smoke Monster for always helping to f- facilitate a lot of this stuff. His, uh, his archaeology degree is now getting applied to, uh, to digital stuff as well. So might not be as cool as ancient stuff, but it is to me at least. Now there's a pretty awesome example of early ROM hacking that uh, you could try out if you'd like. I just released a video introducing the Spark Plug, which is a plug-and-play device that could fit in the back of any of the Turbo Graphics or PC Engine consoles with the pins in the back. Um, and it's a device designed by Tian Fang. I know I'm pronouncing your name wrong, T. Really sorry. <laughs> and uh, um, the case was designed by Greg from LaserBear, and it's now being manufactured and sold by Insurrection Industries. And it's essentially just a high-quality way to get RGB, composite video, and audio all properly shaped through the right circuits out of all of these consoles. Now, of course, um, most of these consoles are going to need at least two capacitors replaced to get rid of jail bars, but that is not to do with any mod, internal, external, whatever. They're all going to need that. So I definitely want to always put that out there when I talk about these things because I don't want people to buy the product and then go, what the heck? I thought this was high quality. I still have jail bars. Totally separate. It has nothing to do with it, but um, it performed really well in all of my tests. Uh, it's not cheap at $50, but it does give you a level of performance that certainly fits the price point. Um, you know, moving up from that, you have the graphics booster, which also adds S video output, and you could have simultaneous S video composite and RGB out if you ever wanted to. Um, there's also solutions made from some good sellers with the, the amp right in the cable, which depending on your setup might be easier. Um, and then of course there's the SSD S3 if you want all the options, but that's a totally different price point. And, uh, you know, while the, while they do similar things, I don't think they're, it's fair to compare them because a $50 thing that outputs video and a $200 and something dollar thing that outputs video and optical drive emulator and a ROM cart, you know, obviously two different products. But overall, if you were just looking for a basic and easy way to get video out from your console, from your PC Engine and Turbo Graphics consoles, this should be a solution that you consider. Um, and one of the examples I made in the video is what if you have multiple consoles? So what if you have a couple of PC engines or a, a super graphics and a turbo graphics to RGB mod internally, all of those, you'd have to get one for each. Whereas if you have a plug and play solution, now you could use that across all of them. So please check out the video. I had fun making this one. I don't know why I just some videos I enjoy and some videos I enjoy a little more making, but please check it out if you like it. Um, uh, all of the details and all of the links to everything, including some of the other options, are in the post. Uh, and once again, shout out and a thank you to Kenji for making those awesome new intros and transitions and everything. I'm still trying to figure out exactly 
where and how I'm going to implement all of them, but I'm going to just make sure to start using all of them because they're too cool not to. So uh, thanks very much to everybody involved in the project. I'm glad to finally see this one come to fruition. And also uh, I used the retro gaming, retro game restore clear case in the review um, only because I just love the way this thing looks. I thought it looked cool in the pictures. Um, Ronnie, I believe wrote up two articles about it and I thought it looked awesome then, but once I actually put one, uh, on my core graphics in person, it, it looks way cooler in person. So check out Ronnie's post on those as well. Um, if you're interested in that stuff. Here's kind of a fun, weird one. Kevin Mellett just released the design files for a 3D printed rear cover for Virtual Boy controllers. And the reason for this is many people have been taking their broken Virtual Boys and consolizing them into neat little consoles. And now they're just using the controller as a controller. And the back of those are where the power connectors used to snap on. And most of these consoleized versions, you now just plug the power into the back and not use the controller. So having a 3D printed rear cover would just kind of make a nice smooth little back off of it and make it feel like more of just a, a basic controller. So while this isn't, uh, you know, while this isn't the greatest accomplishment in Virtual Boy history, it's pretty neat. So if, uh, if you have a 3D printer and a consoleized Virtual Boy, it might be worth looking into one of these. Dan Mons has just posted a write-up about different types of game preservation and specifically how to make rare games available in a web browser. Um, I absolutely loved the post. I highly recommend anybody read it for anybody interested in this. But the very short summary of it is that many games are available to play right through your browser already. And this is really, really great for a million reasons, not just historical reference, but what if you just want to play a game that you haven't played in a million years? You don't want to spend hundreds of dollars on original hardware. A lot of other solutions are time consuming. Now you could just click and play them with your keyboard if you want to. And while it's not the best experience, it'll, it'll work for if you just need to reference a game or you just want to try something out. Well, more specifically, what if you have a platform that you that no one else has really created one of these things for, and you want to be able to provide that for others? Um, Dan specifically wanted to take a game that he'd played when he was a kid, Vortex Blaster, um, which has some of the some very hilarious audio digitizations in there. I definitely laughed when I heard some of that. Reminds me of the very old school ones, but. Rather than go through the trouble of, uh, if anybody else wants to play this, rather than going through all the trouble of setting up emulations, Dan was able to actually create a page where you could just go and play these games uh, right built into your web browser. So the article goes into a, a whole bunch of different things, ranging from how to do this, why you might want to do this, um, other ways to do it. Uh, and then there's, of course, links to more information and everything. So I highly recommend checking this out. Um, and I also recommend taking a moment to go through both uh, Dan's emulator as well as all the ones on archive.org because it's kind of neat to be able to go through and play a game so quickly. You know, you just want to be able to, all right, you know, I just want to try this one game. I just want to see what this looks like or I want to reference this for something. It's very cool to be able to just click on it and go. So Matt Phillips, who's the creator of the game Tanglewood, as well as many others, was just interviewed on the Nate the Hate podcast with Modern Vintage Gamer. And they talked about a very wide variety of subjects, ranging from how Matt started out to uh, how he used original hardware, original development hardware to create Tanglewood on the Genesis, um, as well as talking about crunch time in the video game industry. 
And that's something that's been kind of a hot topic lately because, you know, it's very well known that some companies and some studios will just push their team to unreasonable levels right before games release in order to get it out in time. Uh, And even companies that kind of made a stand and said, we're not going to do that are still kind of doing that. Um, And it was really interesting to hear Matt's take on it as somebody who's got a history making video games for, you know, a few different companies now. Um, And, you know, it's also a very interesting debate just in general, you know, if you're getting paid well enough to, to do something like that, and you understand that this is part of the job, is it still okay to do it? Um, and I, most of the time, I don't know, I, I lean towards no, but I also work a pretty insane amount of hours trying to get all the videos and the posts and all the behind the scenes work done. Um, and most of the time I really enjoy it, but I don't think I would enjoy it if I was doing it for another company where I was forced to do it. I didn't want to do it. So I don't know. The the whole interview podcast, whatever you want to call it, was very interesting. Uh, I had interviewed Matt before and he was awesome. So I kind of knew going into it that it was going to be an interesting listen because obviously I'm also a fan of MVG. So uh, I definitely would recommend it to anybody that uh, that's interested. And if you'd like a, a summary of everything as well as some pretty cool articles, definitely check out Vanessa's post because she really put it into great perspective. So maybe give that a give that a read and see if this is something you'd be interested in listening to. But I found it pretty interesting. A region mod for the N64 was just released that allows you to take any model N64 and play both NTSC and PAL games on it in their original speeds. So NTSC games would always work at 60 hertz and PAL games would always work at 50 hertz. Um, The board does require removing a chip and replacing it with this board. Uh, And I believe there's a few other steps required if you have an RGB modded console. But overall, if you needed one N64 to play all games, this might be something you would want to look into. It's not cheap, though, at $130, but uh, it is something that would make sense if you had, say, let's say you took a a rare model Funtastic N64 and you put an Ultra HDMI in it and you've recapped it, and now you already have a lot of money sunk into one console. Uh, It might seem more cost-effective to pick up one of these than it would be to pick up, say, a PAL N64 and do all those other mods to it as well. So uh, while it's certainly not cheap, it does provide the functionality that you'd need. Um, and if you were looking to have one N64 that played all the games, uh, this seems to be a really excellent option. Well, that's it for this time. Thanks so much to everybody that watches and listens. And of course, thanks to everybody that supports on services like Patreon and Floatplane, because it's your support that's keeping this podcast, all of the behind the scenes research, and all of the videos alive. So thank you all very much, and I'll see you next week. 